Well, thanks, Edmund. If you want to leave your Bibles open and pull out uh, your outline, there'll be some points that will help us to get in to this passage. Why don't we pray? Because whenever we open up God's Word, we recognize that this is actually God speaking to us. He's spoken and His Word is living and active, and we've just heard God speak. So let's ask Him by His Spirit to help us see what He wants us to see and to walk out being changed from viewing His Word. Let's pray together. Lord, tonight, as we think through what you're saying to us in this part of John's gospel, we ask that you would fix our eyes on Jesus. You'd help us to see what John is pointing out about him and see what that means for us. And and we ask that by your spirit, you would work and change us tonight. Lord, we expect and we are so thankful that you work through your word and by your spirit. So tonight we ask you would work in us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had an opinion of someone or something that totally changed? You know, it flipped 180 degrees on itself. Have you ever had one of those those moments uh, where you kind of think, well, I thought this for so long and then suddenly something changes and you think something else. I want to tell you about one of those moments when I met a girl called Sarah. Um, Might have heard of her. Sarah and I actually went to the same high school. We're in the same class together, same year, but in different groups of friends. So uh, Sarah, I would say, um, viewed me as being in, in the nerdy guys group. I don't know why. I feel a little bit offended by that. I feel like I'm a nerdy guy, but, you know, uh, that's what she kind of would have viewed me as. Uh, didn't want anything to do with me. They're kind of into a bit of chemistry and blowing up stuff and who knows what's going on. So she just, yeah, didn't really have much to do with me. And, and my view of Sarah in our year throughout, throughout high school was, well, she was in this group of girls that really wanted nothing to do with boys. I'm not even sure that, that, that they knew boys existed. Well, it's kind of like the snobby group, right? That there's like, we're just getting on with our work and doing what the teachers say and, and getting good marks and what boys? I don't know. And so that was kind of the, the two different uh, groups that we were in and we didn't really have much to do with one another. But as the years of high school went on, um, my opinion didn't change that much until we got to year 11. And in year 11, we got introduced to one another as humans, right? <laughs> It was great. I'm like, whoa, you're a person. She was kind of like, oh. And by this mutual friend, we got to know one another. Uh, Sarah had grown up going to a Pentecostal church, which I had this kind of preconceived idea that Pentecostals were just crazy, happy, clappy people who didn't really know the Bible and, and kind of weren't growing as Christians. So I had this kind of, this view that was a bit weird of them. Uh, and Sarah had this view of me as this Anglican that went to this conservative church, so all the bookish people they just kind of opened the Bible and they, they didn't really, you know, the only time that you'd see a hand raised in an Anglican church was when someone had a question about the sermon and the hand would go up. You know, you wouldn't raise your hand when you're singing. Uh, and really, we, we got to discussing the different views of God and his word. Uh, Sarah started coming to my church and started seeing some of the depth of God's word. Uh, I'm pretty sure her dad thought she'd backslidden. She'd joined this group of people. He's not, you know, do they even have the spirit? Do they have a relationship with God? I mean, you should see them sing. <laughs> uh, that's what it kind of looked like. You know, like. Are they moving their mouths? Are they alive? What is going on? And so, uh, and kind of as she came along, she's thinking, what are these people? But she saw some sort of depth that were there. And as I got to know her... I saw that she actually knew a Bible. She'd grown up understanding the scriptures and that actually she wanted to know more and wanted to grow deeper. And this kind of blew away our preconceived ideas of one another. Uh, she was excited about being in a church that would go deep. And I was excited about some of the things that she'd brought in and, and, and kind of helped us to want to sing in a way that we connect our head and hearts. 
as a side note, it's really one of the things that's always perplexed me uh, about um, kind of the differences between some Pentecostal and some kind of conservative churches. I'm like, if the conservative churches are the ones that are knowing the richness and the depth of who God is and what he's done, more so than perhaps some of the teaching at a, at a Pentecostal church, why do they sing looking like they're dead? I don't get that. And, and then why are the people that are kind of really singing and excited, they kind of haven't got too much depth around God. I'm like, this, this is just all the wrong way around. I don't get it. But anyway, you can explain to me why that's the case a little bit later. So as Sarah and I kind of met, something changed. Something kind of snapped. And I went, hey, this, there's something about her. Now, there was no romantic interest uh, to start off with. Not at all. We were just friends. Like, I was even chatting to her about which girl I should date. Right? So there's not ro- any romantic interest there for me in that. Although her advice was neither of them. So I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> Until one day, it, it, it kind of clicked for me, and I realized she's into the same stuff as me. She's passionate about serving Jesus like I am. She's thinking through Christian ministry down the track, and it was like someone got a fish and just went whack on the face. I don't know why a fish. just feels like it's that kind of right sort of noise to kind of go, whoa. And it literally was like a light bulb moment for me that flipped my view of her, and so we got married. <laughs> Not straight away. There was a bit of time there. Uh, We were 20 when we got married. uh, And so 16 when we were started dating, almost 17 when we started dating. Uh, So we were married pretty young. I was only three years ago. No, just kidding. Uh, 18 years in July. So there you go. But yeah, woo, thanks. Good on Sarah, right? Because she's stuck it out. (laughs) It's easy for me. It's just hard for her. Anyway. Sometimes in life, things come along and slap us in the face and change the way we view things. As we get to this next bit in John 2, we're going to see four different things that slap us in the face and change our view around Jesus and how we respond to him and what religion is and what faith is. So let me come to the first of those. And I want us to think about a marriage, a wedding. Now, as this passage opens, we're brought into a wedding. And it's hard to imagine a more important decision that any of us have to face than the decision to marry someone, right? You're going to commit to that person for the rest of your life. Um, My my grandfather has this saying, uh, he's been married to my nan um, for like, I don't know, 60 years plus, like he's 90, it's more than that. It's a long time. And every time the anniversary comes around, like you you call him up and you chat, you're like, congratulations, another year. And without without failing, every time, my pop says, yep, you get more for murder. Oh, you get less for murder. Wrong way around, Rowan. You get less for murder. Anyway, they've got a great marriage, and it's a really helpful thing. Marriage lasts a long time. That's the point of that illustration, if you're wondering. Just write that down. <laughs> One of the things Sarah and I found about our wedding, a few years later, um, was just how much you're in the limelight at a wedding. I don't know if you've been to weddings and noticed them lately, but if you're like the bride and groom, everyone's looking at you. That's kind of like this moment where, you know, you, you do everything first. Uh, you, you eat first, uh, you walk down the aisle, and everyone's looking to you, they want to take photos of you. Like, to be honest, it's the closest we're probably going to get to being famous. Right? You're not going to have that opportunity again where everyone's like, oh, I want to get a selfie with them, and you know, I was at the wedding, and I want to hear what they have to say. And you get to reception, and every, everyone at the reception says really nice things about the bride and the groom, unless you've got really bad groomsmen and best woman, whatever you call them, because then they say bad things about you. But you know, that's probably not going to happen again. We're going to hear people say all this nice stuff about you, until your funeral, at which point you're not going to hear it anyway. So like, this is a great day. And and the focus is all on the couple. But as we open John 2, 
we see a wedding in which we hardly hear about the couple at all. They're not in the center at all. And it starts to make you wonder what is going on here for the couple are nowhere to be seen. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Now, there she is. (laughs) You meet Jesus' mother at this point, Mary. And you see that she's got a concern for what's going on at this wedding and the fact that there's no wine. And as we take a peek into this couple's great day, something to note is all we are allowed to see in the glory of this wedding is Jesus. No one else. He is at the center. It's a great reminder that at the center of every marriage is Jesus. As a signpost pointing to his love for his people and his marriage to the church. Accepting the proposal of your lover to get married is one thing. But accepting the proposal of the Lord Jesus to follow him into eternal life is a far greater thing. For it will last forever. Marriage, but a short glimpse compared to eternity. There's something central about Jesus. And the problem with this particular wedding at the moment is that there's no wine. Now, who wants to go to a wedding where there's no wine? You're kind of like, oh, okay, some might. But you're kind of like, man, it's great. This is good. It's a celebration. And so Mary, as Jesus' mother, she kind of, she's got a bit of an inkling about this Jesus guy. Now, you know, she's seen him growing up. Uh, She probably heard something from the angels at some point uh, say that he'd be the promised king of the world. But she can't escape the fact that she's still his mother. And like all mothers... They want their sons to just get stuff done, right? If you're a son, you know, yeah, true. Mum's always, oh, can you do this? Or can you do that? That's what we say to our kids. Uh, They're like, you've got to do this stuff. But the slap in the face comes. The thing that switches our view here is the way that Jesus treats his mother, Mary. Because we start to see the switch from Mary being family to Mary being a follower. Have a look at Jesus' response to Mary's request. John 2, chapter 4, sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now you read that and you go, that's not the warmest way to talk to your mum. <laughs> right? There's a kind of no, no, there's, there's no softness in there. It's not rude. It's not disrespectful, but it's definitely distant. There's a distance Jesus puts between him and his mother at this point. And the question for us is why? Why is John pointing us to this miracle at this point, in this point in time, about Jesus and the distance between his mum and himself? The phrase uh, could be literally translated, woman, what to me to you? It's kind of literally what's going on. Woman, what to me to you? And that's exactly the same phrase that Jesus say to the demons, sorry, that the demons say to Jesus in Mark 5. They say, you know, it's like, what's up? You know, what's up with me? What's your issue? Who are we? What's the problem here? It really is saying at this point in time, you and me, we've got nothing in common. And that's pretty strong. Why is Jesus saying that here? And Mary had taught him so much. She was his mum, but now everything, even the family ties had to be subordinated to Jesus' divine mission. You know, everywhere Mary appears in the course of John's gospel, Jesus kind of establishes a distance between him and his mum. Why is that? Because Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. His mum wanted him to do something about it. and She knew he could. 
And he said, now is not the time. Now is not the time for everyone to be looking at me. Now is not the time or the hour to jump in because Jesus is working to his father's plan, not his earthly mother's plan. And that's why Jesus kind of carefully and respectfully distances himself and puts Mary in her place because his plan will not be driven by his earthly mother, but his heavenly father. There's no inside track to Jesus. You can't kind of come along and just be like, put your arm on your shoulder and say, hey, Jesus, you and me, we're sweet. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't come to me like that. You don't, you don't call shots. The hour would come where he would see his glory. What happens at this moment is Mary maybe remembers the words of those angels. She kind of has this moment where she's slapped out of her kind of view and then remembers who he really is and quickly flips back, recognizing that she is not primarily family to this one, but a follower. Look at what Jesus, look at what Mary says in verse five. Do whatever he tells you. <laughs> she gets it. Okay, hang on a minute. Do, do whatever he says. His mother told the servants. This is showing us we need to get our approach to Jesus right. I don't know what your view of Jesus is tonight. I don't know what, what you think as you approach him, whether you can come to him and say, look, I'd love you to do this, 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 and this for me. I'd love you to get uh, my life a little bit more healthy. I'd love you to kind of help me get through my exams, to get me a great job, to get me a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And we have these different views that Jesus can be like a vending machine where we come up and poke him and he gives us what we want. Our approach to Jesus shouldn't be as, you know, a father or a mother telling him what to do for you or as a mate or a buddy or my BFF. You know, that's not our way that we approach Jesus. We approach him as John has laid him out. The creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one through whom everything was made. The one who stepped into the world and will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the gateway to heaven. He's the Lord. Is he your Lord? How do you approach Jesus? How do you treat Jesus? Is he your king? We need to take the lead for Mary, who had every kind of right to think she could put her arm around him as her son and move from family and friend to follower. Then the question comes along, what's with the wine? Why is this first miracle that Jesus does here about wine? And the thing to note is we see another flip. We see ceremony turn to celebration. The ceremonial Turn to celebration. Have a look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Now, six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. That the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you've kept the fine wine until now. Well, what's with the wine? What stands out here? Why is he telling us about this is the first miracle? Wouldn't be what I'd pick. Well, the first thing we've got to note is these jars. They're huge. There's six of them. And they take 20 to 30 gallons. I've seen a similar one, and they're like about this high. They're really big and they're made of stone. They're massive. When you add the six together, we're talking somewhere between 600 to 750 liters of wine. That's a lot. 800 to 1,000 bottles for those playing at home. 1,000 bottles of wine on the wall. Imagine that song. They're going to be there for a while at this wedding. 
But John tells us that Jesus didn't just choose any jars. Like there's something special about these jars. Talking about the jars of the water in is not really something we normally do. Like take for instance, last time you had a cup of tea. Who can remember having a cup of tea recently? Did any of you tell your friends what pattern was on the outside of the teacup? Nope. You know, no one kind of went along with, I've got this like this rose-colored one, I had some red on it and a little handle, and well, we don't talk about the cup. Why is John talking about these, these jars? Who cares? There's wine in them. It's awesome. Well, because they were Jewish purification jars. They were big stone jars where people would come down and they would wash themselves ceremonially to make themselves ceremonially clean, as the Old Testament law said to make themselves pure, to recognize they were sinners and they need washing. And the Jews would do this all the time before they did different festivals and different meals. They would come and wash themselves in this water. This water would, it was showing that God would somehow treat them as more pure because they needed to cleanse themselves. And what does Jesus do? He comes along and turns the water to cleanse that symbolizes all the ceremonial law and all that God had said previously about how we had to be pure before God. And he turns that into wine. <laughs> he turns the water to wine. H2O into HCH3. Gotta get it right. CH2OH. Is that right? I did a year of science at uni. <laughs> it's a long time ago. And he turns the wine into a lot of wine. Why is that? Like, you know, just need a couple more bottles, maybe. Why is there so much? Because we're seeing another slap in the face, another flip of the ceremonial, the Old Testament kind of purification into the celebration. Jesus is saying he is bringing something better than ceremonial washing and purification. He is bringing life and lavish life to the full where the wine flows freely, where there is so much wine. It's just, there's a thousand bottles of the stuff. It's like, how do we do this? The sheer quantity of the wine becomes symbolic of the lavish provision of the new age he is bringing in. The first thing he does is say, there is, there's wine coming and a lot of wine. They used to draw water for the ceremonial washing. Now we are to draw for the feast that is to come. And when this Jesus becomes the bridegroom at another wedding, when he, when he comes down and meets the, the bride, who is the church in the sky, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, what is happening is the joy of celebration. That our dwelling place is now with God and God with man. And we can enjoy life to its fullness and its lavishness in the way that Jesus and God have set out before all time. The wine Jesus provides is unqualifiedly superior, so much better. It's the best. Now, if you're a Jew at this point and you're hearing this story, you'd remember some promises about wine. Some moments that God had spoken in the past about a time when wine would flow freely. Look at Amos 9 verse 13. Amos 9 13. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's, Yahweh's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of the seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people. They'll rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. Jesus is coming to say that Old Testament law, that the thing that we needed to purify ourselves will now be fully fulfilled in what I can do. For I'm bringing in the new age, the age when Yahweh turns up and turns water to wine. It is so abundant and the celebration is so good. That is what I'm bringing in. Wine is a marker of the good life. The good life God offered Israel 
in the promised land that is now being fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth because of Jesus. Now, the great hour of Jesus' glory of that wine being poured out has not yet come, but what we're getting tonight is a glimpse of it. Not the final glory, but its beginnings. And that glory causes belief. The disciples see it and believe. There's something about Jesus. And they're in. There's one thing to note here. Some people come along to this passage and they see that um, the head waiter is saying, usually people bring the, the kind of best wine at the start and the bad wine at the end when everyone's drunk. And people go, well, maybe Jesus is saying here in the Bible saying it's cool at weddings to get drunk. Right? That's, that's what's happening. And here's a point where there's nothing against it. But scripture keeps pointing out to us that we ought not to be drunk. We should be in control. And so this is not a reason for us to just go, oh, great, I can get drunk. No, we need to be in control of our bodies of what we say and what we do. Uh, the issue here, though, it's not drinking. You cannot say from this passage that drinking alcohol is a sin. Jesus makes the wine, <laughs> right? The new age will be an age when we can drink and not fall over and enjoy it. Uh, and we won't have that issue, but it'll be something that we celebrate together and without all the kind of dodginess that comes with drinking in the way that it affects us today. But the issue for us as Christians is we ought not to be drunk. I think so often we define what being drunk is by when someone can't get back up again. Now that's drunk. But we should define what being drunk is as when others tell us we're drunk. When others say, you're not yourself. See, our government says it's illegal to drive a car if your blood alcohol concentration is over 0.05. And if you're under 20, it can't be any alcohol in your blood. Our government says that is inappropriate for you to drive. You can jump on the website on the government and have a look at what happens at different levels of of alcohol levels in our blood. Uh, Once you get to 0.05, they say, and this is just straight from the website, you have an altered mood, increased well-being or unhappiness, friendliness or shyness or argumentativeness, impaired concentration and judgment, and it reduces sexual disinhibition. I keep getting that word wrong. In other words, you do dumb stuff, right? So that's just at 0.05 at that point. Once you just drink two times more than that to kind of get you know, double of what that was before, you get to 0.15. And then it says there, uh, this is what happens when you get to that point. Slurred speech, unsteady walking, nausea, double vision, increased heart rate, drowsiness, mood, personality, and behavior changes that may be sudden, angry, and antisocial. Right? And the list keeps going down. Oh, I kid you not. You get to one level and it says one of the side effects is death. It's a poison. It doesn't affect us well. Now, if the government says that driving a car is dangerous when you're drunk, we need to hold it so is talking when you're drunk. Because we can cause just as much damage with our mouth as we can behind the wheel of a car when we say wrong words and horrible words and hurtful words to others. If you can't stop drinking, if drinking is an issue for you tonight, don't use this passage to say, look, it's cool. Jesus turned water into wine. Let's drink it up. Now, use this passage to look forward to the day when it pours out in its goodness and it doesn't cause any of the side effects. But if, if it's an issue, then talk to someone. Having a problem with alcohol is no more of a sin than having a problem with greed or with pride. It's the same issue. We're pushing God aside and putting ourselves at the center. So don't be ashamed. Talk to someone tonight, your connect group leader or someone that you came with. Say, look, pray for me in this. I'm not living right and I need to stop it. And I'd love you to give me a hand to get through it. And if, you're, if someone comes and says that to you, you don't go, oh, I can't believe you said that. You know, you heathen. No. Here, I'm a sinner too. And we need to walk alongside one another. 
Well, when it comes to flips, there's more to come. We've seen the ceremonial go to the celebration, but the next flip we see is religion to relationship. Look at John 2, verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem, to the temple. In the temple, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins. He overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. I don't know if that view of Jesus is what you expect of him. John's telling this story, so it shocks us. What is going on? Why is Jesus so angry? He's walked in and he's kind of turning these tables over. He's pushing people out. He's made like this soft whip of cords. He's like, get out, get out. Why? Kind of at first sight, you're like, well, what's wrong with this? Like you needed to come and, and get um, bulls and goats and sheep and doves to be able to make sacrifices. You needed to pay the temple tax. So someone had to be doing some money exchange somewhere. What, what, what's the problem, Jesus? Seems kind of normal. Until we get a little slap in the face. The issue isn't that... They were corrupt. The issue is they shouldn't have been in the temple forecourts at all. When Solomon opened the original temple a thousand years before Jesus, he prayed this prayer. And it tells us about the outer court where Jesus walked into, the court of the Gentiles and what it was for. Listen to what he says on the screen, 2 Chronicles 6.32. 2 Chronicles 6.32. Even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your strong hand and outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple... Lord, may you hear in heaven, in your dwelling place, and do all the foreigner asks you. Then all the people of the earth will know your name, to fear you as your people Israel do, and to know that this temple that I have built bears your name. Solomon, as he's kind of concentrating the, the temple, is saying, Lord, bring in the nations as you promised to Abraham, that through you all nations would be blessed. Bring them in. And we see little fulfillment of that, of the Queen of Sheba coming. And she could come into these outside courts. And there she could pray to the God who dwelt in the holy of holies of the temple, the place God was with his people. And the outer court was supposed to be a place that the nations could come and pray to the the true and living God. And recognize him as God. They couldn't go into the next one in, which is the court of the women. Only Jewish women could be in there. And the next one in, just the the Jewish men. And it's kind of the holy of holies in the center. Um, They couldn't go further, but they could pray to God. They could draw near to him there. This outer court was supposed to be a place where people could come and say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. You are the true and living God. But instead of the chorus of people bowing to the true and living God and praising him from all nations, the sound that rang out from that kind of temple forecourt on that day was old MacDonald had a farm. E-I-E-I-O. Right? There's just cows going on. Right? And there's money changes. It's just like a shopping center. There's all this noise and this clamor and clash. And Jesus walks in and is like, what is going on? This should not be happening at all. You've kind of pushed the people who aren't Jews. You've pushed the Gentiles away from God the Father. You've not allowed them access in. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping center, a market. Instead of solemn dignity. As they draw near to the symbolic presence of God in prayer. They were doing business. And making money and changing coins. and 
stopping foreigners to come to the true and living God. They've forced the rest of the world out of the temple by making a house of prayer into a house of profit. They've been treating God as a religion. I mean, coming to this thing of the temple and seeing it as something that's theirs and they just keep doing and over and over, rather than recognizing right relationship with God, of coming to God on his terms. You might think Jesus has lost the plot when you get here, making a whip, driving them out. It's got a little cuckoo. Maybe you had too much drink to drink at the, at the wedding and it's like, it's still coming on. No, he's bang on. He's angry. He's fuming. He's motivated by zeal, John tells us, as he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for my father's house will consume me. He says to us, actually, Jesus is doing exactly what God wants him to do. His father wants him to do. To boot these people out, to have a zeal, a a, a deep passion. The Good News Version describes that verse like this. It says, my devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. My devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. Jesus is not like a crazed lover who's gone out of control. He's a jealous lover for his bride. And he will stop at no lengths to put right that which is wrong. He wants these people to move from religiosity, from just going through the motions to real relationship, to awe and prayer and obedience In the passage here, we're struck by Jesus' zeal. Him consumed for jealousy by his, by his, for, for his father. And you've got to ask, do you, do you have a deep desire? Do you have a desire in your heart to burn in you like fire for God's name? Have you lost your fire? Has your zeal been choked out by the worries and pleasures of life? Have you invited a farm into your house, into your life, and been so kind of pushed aside that you've actually not been treating God rightly? You're bringing in all sorts of things. The worries, worries of the world, maybe the, the, the kind of statutes of religion. I'm just going to church every Sunday. I'm just going to church just because that's what I've got to do. I go to connect group because that's what I've got to do. I go to read the Bible because that's what I've got to do. Rather than going, I want to meet with God and his people. I want to encourage others. I want, to, I want God to keep shaping me and molding me. What burns in you like a fire? What excites you? What kind of ticks your boxes and makes you go, yes, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm excited about. Is it a new lounge, a new car, a new gadget? Seeing some exciting investment proposal or seeing a job that comes up you might want to jump un- into? Is it, is it a relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Was it seeing someone move from death to life, trusting in Jesus? Are you jealous that the world treats God properly, that the world has an opportunity to come to God? Are you jealous for your own holiness? The Apostle Paul tells us that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That this temple here was where God dwelt, but now by the Spirit, by what Jesus did in his death and resurrection and then ascension and the coming of the Spirit, that God can dwell in those who trust him. That God does dwell in those who trust him. By his Spirit, that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Where have you invited in the farm rather than the farmer, father? <laughs> what sins do you need to drive out of your life? Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. 
Where do you need to stop watching that show? Stop clicking that link. Stop playing that game. Stop reading that literature. Stop going to that place or being with that person that you know you ought not to be. Get it out. Get it out. We exist to serve our Father. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't invite all sorts of others in. But there's something even bigger going on here than just the temple that we have of the Spirit living in us. Jesus is showing us something in this section that's another slap in the face. He's showing us what really is the greatest shift, moving us from a shadow to a reality. So have a look, chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews replied to Jesus, What sign will you show us for doing these things? You just booted them out, right? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. You're like, what? Therefore, the Jews said this temple took 46 years to build and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Notice they don't care about what Jesus says, turning the temple into a marketplace or right worship or the access of the world to God. They don't care about that. They just go, who do you think you are? They question his authority. By what means do you do these things and say these things? All they care about is their position and, and what had happened beforehand. They're less concerned with pure worship and a right approach to God than they are with questions of precedent and authority. And how often that can be like you and me. I've never done it that way before. We've always done it this way. What right do you have to make a comment on my life? You might be right or not, but I don't really care. What right do you have? Rather than responding to God on his terms, listening to what someone might be lovingly trying to tell us. The fact they didn't just boot him out as a crazy guy gives us a hint. They thought there might be possibly going, more going on here. Maybe he is a prophet, perhaps. Jesus' answer... Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. That's the sign. It's ludicrous. 46 years it's taken to build this temple. Like the foundation stones, they're huge, like the size of a bus. Like three days. Like you, you can't build this huge complex in three days. Not even with 3D printing. Like you can't, you just can't do it. You just, you could not see it happen. It's crazy. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's showing us that all that he's come to do is take what was the old in the shadow and move forward to the reality. Just like the ceremonial purification jars, Jesus brings something better. He's saying this temple, the place where God dwelt, the place where you meet with God, is me. I'm bringing access to God. The place that God dwells is where I am. I am God the Son. He's saying, I am the temple. Just in John 1, what did John told us? That the, the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt amongst us. That word was tabernacle was used for the, the tent where God dwelt before they made that a permanent temple. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. What's he saying? Jesus is the place we meet with God. Jesus fulfills the idea of a temple. There's no need for a temple anymore. That's why you know, they didn't rebuild one after it was knocked down in AD 70, right? Because the Christians knew that Jesus was the temple. Jesus is so clear. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. The temple is Jesus. 
As he dies and rises again, we see he is God. If the sacrifices are not meant to be taken literally, and we see Jesus is the sacrifice, why should we take the temple literally? Why do people say we're going to rebuild the temple? We've got to have this temple coming. Well, because there's stuff in Ezekiel that's pointing forward to a temple being rebuilt. But Jesus is explicitly clear. Three days, destroy it. Because the temple is my body. He moves from shadow, the temple pointed forward to the place God dwelt, to reality. We don't need to build a temple. We have God the Son who is coming back down to be with his people. He's given us God the Spirit to live in us. Oh, how much richer, how much more lavish, how much greater is this? Like pouring out of the wine that now we can be in perfect relationship with God. You know, when Solomon built the temple at the very beginning, he he built it and he's kind of built in a clause to say this is going to be temporary. Look at 2 Chronicles 6 verse 18. God does not really live with humankind on the earth. Look, if, if the sky and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. In other words, God, you're way bigger than you can kind of dwell in a temple in this place. This temple is not big enough for you. From the very beginning, Solomon was saying that the temple will never be more than a symbol. It was built with a self-destruct button on it. God was just waiting for Jesus to come and hit that button to go, there he is, the true temple. God dwells not in a building, but in the body of Jesus. He is the gateway to heaven. He is the house of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is where you meet God. Have you seen Jesus? Well, throughout all of these flips that we've seen, it's four different flips, we've seen glimpses of Jesus' glory. The hour has not yet come to see it fully, but we've seen little sneakings in of, of the wine that is coming, sneaking in of, of his family, treating him as, as, as God. We've seen that the ceremonial turn into celebration. We've seen the shadow, the temple, turn into the reality of the place we meet with God. And we've seen breaking in and glimpses of that glory. The time has not yet come for us to see that glory in its fullness. It will as we get to the end of the book of John. But we see glimpses of what it will be like. At the very end of the Bible, the Apostle John, he writes these words in Revelation 19. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is the glory. He has prov- he ha- and his bride has prepared herself. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. That is what we are to look forward to. The hour of Jesus' glory. The hour that he comes back. The true marriage we want to make sure we don't miss. It's not even our wedding day, but the marriage of Jesus with us as the bride, the bridegroom with the bride, the marriage of the lamb. For that is the day that his provision of wine and abundance and celebration and overflowing will come. That is the wedding you do not want to miss out on. I don't know where you sit today with recognizing the glory of God. I don't know whether you've seen that Jesus is the true and living God, but I want you to imagine for a moment. That after we shut our eyes in death, you wake up knowing that for all eternity, on the other side of the wall, on the other side of the wall of life, is a wonderful wedding feast where Jesus and all his people are laughing and loving, but you're not there. And the only reason you're not there is because you thought you had too much to lose in becoming a Christian. 
Friends, don't go throughout this life and think Jesus is not important. Don't miss the significance of who he is and what he has done, of these glimpses of glory of who he is. Let him today slap you in the face to recognize him as the savior of the world. The one that turns all of that ceremonial purification into celebration as he dies on the cross for us. The one who points us and and takes us from religiosity to relationship with God. The one who turns the shadow of everything that had happened before into the reality of relationship with him forever. Today, as we come to Jesus, take the lead from his mother, Mary. Remember his glory and do whatever he tells you. For in him is life and life to the full. Do not miss out on life. but Live for this king. Let's pray. Lord, tonight it is so exciting to see these parts of history unfold and to recognize who Jesus really is. We ask that your word to us this evening would not go away empty, but that we'd be amazed that you have shown us who Jesus is and what he's done. That he's come and and turned that ceremonial law of the things we had to go through to, to celebration and that we can enjoy eternity with you because of Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection. Help us to see the shadow of the things gone before and how they point to the reality. Draw us to your son and help us to live for him as temples of your spirit. And for us tonight, Lord, that for the first time I'd have heard of or seen of Jesus' glory, we ask you would draw us to you. You'd help us to treat you as our king and that we might trust Jesus as our savior. Help us tonight to go away amazed at the life that we have been offered, and be thankful. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing in a moment about approaching the throne of God, that we bring nothing to Him. And as we do that, we're going to pass around some bread and some grape juice, some fake wine. And it's a great night tonight to celebrate Jesus' body being broken, that's what the bread symbolizes, and His blood being poured out, so that we could be forgiven. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can, we can celebrate for eternity if you trust in him. And so if you are a Christian, if you do trust in Jesus, then take the, the bread and the, and the grape juice that's passed around. Hold on to it. If tonight for the first time you're like, I want in. I actually want to follow Jesus. I want him to be my king. I want him. I want to share in this eternal feast. Then why not you take the bread and the grape juice and hold on to it and make this a prayer that for the first time you want to trust him with your life. Holding onto it as it passes around, stand and sing together about the great joy of coming with nothing to the God who's given us everything. Let's stand and sing.